I'm Stefan Heller, one of the founding partners of AQVC. Uh, welcome everybody who's joining us right now to our monthly webinar. And uh, today I'm very happy to introduce Alex Fellman, our guest. Um, Alex, maybe you want to very quickly introduce yourself before we kick it off with some with some great discussion. Sure. Uh, yeah, I could do a pretty long intro, but I'll try to keep this short. <laughs> uh, my background, or let's say one of the strong hats I wear is I'm a general partner of, of my family office, Feldman Family Office. Uh, I've been involved for the last 10 years. What's it? Yeah, I guess this is year 10. So I started in 2014. Uh, our family office has been around for, I think at this point, it's almost 25 years. So we started around 2000 uh, by my father. Um, headquartered in New York, which is where I'm from originally, uh, but I moved to Europe in 2015. So since I moved to Europe, I started the European branch of our office. Uh, and kind of, I guess the last thing that's kind of relevant and we can get deeper is uh, my background is actually in biochemistry and the commercialization of science. Um, so I lead up what I like to call our, our tech and deep tech investments within the group uh, because I actually have a, a bit of a kind of technical framework to actually analyze uh, tech companies, um, particularly in the in the biochemistry space, which is you know where, where my roots are. Um, and so, so that's kind of a, a really big focus for me, um, even even though we do do quite a few things that are not on the tech side, but but I, I'm really personally really focused on the tech side just because that's where kind of my interests and background lie. Very, very cool. Thanks, Alex. I mean, uh, somebody just raised their hand. If you have any questions in the meantime, uh, please use the Q&A feature of, um, of Zoom so we can get through your questions or you can also use the chat. Um, I think you can, uh, it should work that everyone can chat. If it doesn't work, um, please let me know. Um, wait, I quickly check that it's activated. It should be activated now. Um, cool. Well, Alex, I mean, thanks for this intro, right? But before we dive into maybe some more details on your investment and your family office's investment strategy, maybe you can tell me a bit more about your definition of what a single family office is and how it really differs from other, you know, investment firms like multifamily offices um, and really how that how this shapes your approach to venture investing. Sure. I, I mean, it's ultimately, it's one of those things that I think it's, it's everyone has a little bit of their own personal definition on it. There's sort of, I think it's one of those things, right? No two families are the same. And so I think just on a certain level, no two family offices are the same. They're about as different and unique as, as family businesses are and as families go. Uh, but I think a couple of quick high-level things, um, and in particular about family offices, um, realistically, well, I was going to say it's it's kind of somewhat of an organized organization, but that, that may not be true. Um, so it's more or less, it's a single family. So it's one family trying to, in some way, shape, or form, put a structure around maintaining their wealth long-term or facil facilitating some kind of other goal that they're using their wealth towards. Um, and so we're really looking at most likely kind of a couple of different scenarios. Um, one is maybe the family has some kind of exit. So they're, 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 they're you know, business owners, they've sold their business, um, that they have all this money, they want to do something with it. Another situation could be that, let's say, maybe they haven't sold their business, but their business is quite successful. They have enough where through dividends or, you know, they've sold off some shares, et cetera. They have extra money. They can do a family office around that. Um, and I think the third one as well, you'll see often, is let's say usually it's, I would call it the more uh, people coming from a professional services background. So bankers, accountants, lawyers, et cetera, um, they've made enough money through through those types of professions um, where they've decided to, to set up a family office. Um, and I think one thing that's kind of worth mentioning is generally speaking, a single family office is just one single family. Um, 
I would say it does differ whether or not that family actually, uh, it, let's say, is actively involved or if they've decided to hire some kind of professional to run it. If every family is different. My, my family, pretty much our family office is all family members. Um, we do also have a multifamily group on the multi side. We, we, are, we are working without people outside the family and we, we are hiring people and, and the like, um, as well as we've joined forces with a couple of other family offices um, on that side. But with, with the actual family office of my family, um, it's only family members. Um, that, that's just the way we do it. Some people don't, some people like that. Some people don't. Um, I think we'll get more into this later. I think it, it really depends on let's say how active you want to be with kind of the preservation of wealth slash, uh, driving the, the goals that you want your wealth to, to achieve. Um, and if you want to mm -hmm. be more active then then it's kind of more family members, if you don't really want to be active, then you're probably hiring someone to, to kind of execute on your behalf. Right. And, and, and yeah. yeah, I think that's a good definition at this point. We can dive, dive in on anything. No, thanks. I, I think what is interesting is obviously that in, in our experience, right, as a, as a fund of fund, we, we work with a lot of family offices who are our investors, and it's actually quite rare that family members are active in the family office, right? Usually they, they have external people managing the family office for them, and sometimes the family members are somehow involved, but it would be very interesting to learn also your journey, how I mean, how you ended up basically in the family offices and, and, and how, what motivates you there also. Sure. Uh, I'm going to give, before I get into that, I'll give a little bit of pushback. Um, I think it really depends on the family offices. And I would say it's probably roughly 50-50, at least from what I've seen. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it, it is roughly the type of thing where, so a general characterization that I've made for family offices, and, and yes, it's certainly hard to, to, to make generalizations, but one that I, I do think makes sense is that I think generally speaking, you tend to see more on one side, financially oriented family offices. And that's family offices that generally speaking, the wealth is coming out of professional services. Um, and so, you know, your lawyers, your accountants, et cetera. And I would say for most of those, I, I would agree with you very, very much. Uh, the families might not be active and they're, they're generally speaking, using their family offices very much like your, your wealth managers, your investment banks, um, et cetera. That, that's kind of what they want out of their family offices. I think there's another, uh, let's say, type of family office, which are, are the families that are generally your more entrepreneurial families. Um, so so mm -hmm. kind of your, your business owners, your, your business operators, um, et cetera. And what I tend to find is that those family offices actually, you tend to see the family members a lot more active. Um, I, I do think that, let's say, being an entrepreneur or, or a business operator is something that, you know, let's say what, once you catch it and once you have this bug, you tend to be that for life. Um, and so these people tend to like to be hands-on. They tend to like to be active. Um, they, they, they like getting their hands dirty. Um, and I think for those people, uh, they, they tend to be very, very active within the family office. Um, and I, th I think that's very much uh, both my family. Um, I, I, it's one of those things I didn't realize till, till I was older. Uh, but my family has kind of always been somewhat entrepreneurial. Uh, before my dad started the family office, he had his own sports entertainment marketing company. Before that, he, had, he was kind of the head of his own law firm. Um, and this is kind of how he, he got into to, to the space. Uh, and then just for myself as well, I've kind of always had a bit of an entrepreneurial um, side to me. And even kind of in parallel to the family offices, I've started my own businesses, um, et cetera. And so, so I think, uh, let's say the entrepreneurial side of the family office space resonates with me more. And then also on the mm -hmm. multifamily side, we're primarily working with entrepreneurial families. Um, and actually on, the, on, on our multifamily side, we're actually much more like a corporate venture capital as a service for these mm -hmm. families. So we're actually really looking for strategic transactions um, that feed into their core businesses and as you could probably imagine, with more entrepreneurial family offices, actually, 
you know, for them, a significant portion of their wealth is usually assuming it's still active and they're still involved, tied up in their core businesses, right? So that's kind of yeah. the main driver of their, their long-term wealth are these businesses. Um, and so they're often kind of using these family offices almost like a CVC um, as a way to kind of, let's say, push forward investments that they see the long-term benefit from for their, for their you know, main source of their wealth. However, it might be the type of thing where it would be difficult to actually, you know, move it through the bureaucracy that they have within the, the large organization. Um, mm. Yeah, that's kind of a, a bit of a long-winded uh, uh, rebuttal. Uh, but but let me get into sort of my personal story, which which is, I guess, kind of interesting or not. I'll kind of try to keep the, to the short version of this. Um, so I did my undergrad in California, uh, studied biochemistry. While I was doing it, I, I became fairly disillusioned with with my career options, which were basically becoming a doctor or going into pharma. Uh, didn't like it. So I spent a number of years traveling the world. Um, and in about 2014, uh, basically, I was in China, decided to leave China, and didn't really know what I was doing. So I went home to New York. And more or less, I went home and my my dad goes, do you know what you're doing with yourself now? And I said, nope, I don't know what I'm doing. He said, well, in that case, I'm going to go put you to work in the family office. And I went, Okay. And he was like, well, actually, <laughs> at that point in time, I would say we probably had just trying to think maybe just started investing in biotech, maybe only mm -hmm. two to three years before, even before he really got me on full time. Uh, occasionally, he was sending me biotech deals and being like, hey, Alex, can you can you look at the science behind this? Uh, I, I don't understand any of this. You know, can you can you give me mm -hmm. your two cents? Is this reasonable, not reasonable? You know, um, kind of part of my language, but you know how much bullshit is is being presented here, um, and so I would review it, and then by the time that I came back in, in fourteen, you know, we would probably been in the space three to four years at that point. Um, he's like, all right, well, I'm going to basically have you do that full time, and so more or less, I joined um, for that year, working with the family office, really shadowing my dad, and, and basically being a biotech analyst, kind of as you might see at a, at a you know biotech venture fund. Um, reviewing lots of companies, analyzing them, seeing seeing what worked, um, and that really kind of, I mean, that's how I joined. But it also, uh, I'll give a short kind of tangent story. Is is really how I ended up in Europe. Um, so in 2015, I moved to Europe. But the the real reason why was is I, I realized that from reviewing all these biotech companies, that there was a really big gap in the market, and the gap was basically for business trained people with science foundations, um, and mm -hmm. you sort of had all these companies that were being essentially being pushed by their scientific founders. A lot of them were a disaster. Um, and so that was one thing that was kind of a little bit disheartening, but also I, I saw it on the investment side where they're even on the investment side of the fence, uh, not so many you know, uh, people making investment decisions actually had a, a scientific background. Um, and yet we're investing in all these you know, really big deep tech companies. And I would argue most of them probably shouldn't have been because they, they very, very, very much on a fundamental level didn't understand what the businesses did. Um, and I, just giving, calling my dad out a little bit, but sometimes we'd go to meetings together and I, I could very much often tell the exact moment when we lost him. Like I could just see the, the exact moment where his eyes would glaze over and I'm like, okay, I, I'm now kind of running this meeting from our side because you know, for the next 10, 15, 20 minutes, we've lost my dad. He doesn't understand what's going on. So I, I need to be the one on, on top of it. Um, and I realized that, yeah, there's this gap here. Um, decided I want to go get my master's in kind of the hybrid of, of science and business. Uh, found a program at the Copenhagen Business School, applied, got in. Um, that's how I came to Europe. That's kind of how uh, we had the boots on the ground here. Uh, we've always kind of worked with a couple of European families. Um, and so then now we had kind of a, at least a, a family presence in, in, the, in the local ecosystem. Yeah. And, uh, like I said, that's, uh, so that was 2015, so almost 10 years ago. Uh, so I, I came wow. in 2015. 
Um, and that's when we kind of started the, the European kind of physical branch of the office. Even though in the past we, we have kind of um, had offices through some of our clients. Um, so we've had clients in kind of London and Geneva and, and a couple of other cities around Europe. Um, and sometimes we, we've used those on, on needs B, but, but you know, now, now, now that I'm here, yeah. I, get to, I get to be the office for, for the group. Nice. I mean, Alex, there's so much to to dig in here. This is super interesting. I mean, there, in my in my mind, right, there are really two sides to this uh, where we can go with this discussion. One is really also the the personal experience that you had working with your dad. I don't know if you have siblings and other family members, but very often when we go to family office conferences or when also some of our investors and and the family members there, uh, very quickly the discussion goes away from just the investment opportunities and wh where we see there are certain ways to make money. And it's also about conflict, about, uh, you know, working with family members and how to how to resolve this. Um, I don't know, how was it for you working with your dad suddenly and are there other family members um, where you really had to find your own ground? I mean, you're very specialized, right? So I think it's it's definitely an interesting area. Yeah, uh, I think a couple of different things. So, so I'll tell this story because I think it's quite relevant. Um, I think my transition in the family office was actually fairly seamless. And I, and I think one of the things about it and one of the reasons it was so seamless is let's say from day one, there was a very, very obvious way for me to provide value to, to the family office. Um, and there was kind of a very obvious, like we have this need um, where your expertise would actually help us with this need. Um, and so it became very, very easy for me to transition in. I think a funny story, or let's say the, the fu funny counterpoint to that was, was what happened with my sister. Um, and before even I tried to join the family office, uh, my, my dad tried to get my sister to join the family office. And I think he probably, I don't remember exactly, and this was before I joined, so this must have been 2012, 2013. And I think she might must have been, I think probably what happened was probably some, a similar thing. I, I don't know for certain, but I, I would imagine it probably went down like this, is that I think she probably came home from, from college, uh, didn't know what she was doing with herself. My dad tried to do the same thing with her, um, and she lasted one month. <laughs> And I think part of the reason she lasted one month was I don't think there was, let's say, a plan with her or, or they didn't really have somewhere to plug her in. They didn't really know how to use her. And so, so she didn't really see the purpose of, of being involved and engaged with the family office at that time. Um, and I think funny, funny thing is, is fast forward, let's say from that point in time, roughly 10 years to I don't know, two or three years ago, um, I think my sister now suddenly kind of found a bit more of her way in the world. Uh, she's she's younger than me by about four and a half five years. Found a bit of her way in the world. Uh, had been actually doing real estate investment, kind of buying buying land and flipping it. Uh, that kind of got her the idea of like, huh, maybe I should become a real estate agent. Um, so she got her real estate license. Now she's working at a professional real estate agent. And guess what happened? Lo and behold, uh, the family office comes back and said, Hey, do you want to get involved with the real estate side of the family office? And now my sister's involved, right? And and I think it, it's it's one of those things and. and I know this wasn't exactly your question, but I might as well throw it out there is I think when you're, when you're dealing with kind of multi-generational family members, um, let's say what I've seen that works and doesn't work is basically like if you have a direct role for the younger generations and you can see where they can fit in, I think it generally works. Um, and especially if, if that role is, let's say, driven from their interests and desires, then I think it could work. But I think if, if you do it kind of the opposite, where it kind of becomes almost a top-down push and, and you're kind of like, oh, I want you here for, for my needs and whatnot. Very, very rarely have I seen that work. Um, it, it just, it doesn't usually make sense. Usually, you know, in general, I think most people like to try to make, you know, their own way in the world and, and whatnot, put, put their own mark. 
Um, and unless what you're trying to do fits in with the mark they're trying to put on the world, then it, it becomes very, uh, you know, very difficult to get kind of buy-in and engagement. Um, and I think that that tends to just, let's say, co cause conflicts within families. And I think it's funny because I, I agree with you. One thing that we tend to see on, on the multifamily side is often we have some of the discussions that you're talking about where, uh, let's say, we're much more almost like a, a counselor or a therapist or, you know, yeah. a, a mediator or, or, or we, we, we do these family dynamic things. Um, and I, I think for us, it's, it's been relatively okay. Like I said, my, my sister came and left, but then once, once she kind of found a place that was coming from her, it worked out really, really well. Um, nice. For me, there's kind of always a place for me that made sense for me. So, so the transition was pretty seamless. Um, I do think, uh, being overly honest about this, um, I think there will potentially be some issues at some point in terms of... Um, kind of succession planning and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I, I think we're just the way my family is, I have a feeling that that, that might cause a, a bit of tension and, and need to work itself out. And especially since there hasn't been so much going in that direction as, as you know, as my parent, my, my father is getting up there in age. Um, so I think that that might become the point of, 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 of interest of, of kind of what you're, what we're talking about here. Um, but outside of that, I think it's worked well for us. And I think one thing that I kind of recommend um, for most family offices in this day and age, if you're thinking about getting kind of the next generations involved and you're trying to think, you know, where, where should we put them? Um, I think venture and tech is, is, a, is a great place to put the next generation. Um, and, and really, you know, realistically, especially with things like, like social media, AI, all these things, generally speaking, the, the next generation tends to be the most on top of these trends anyways. So they, they're more or less kind of the, the most equipped uh, and ready to kind of deal with the, with these types of the technical issues. So, your your I would argue your family office probably needs to be in the tech space anyways, and you probably want the best people there. And most likely, the the next generations are probably the best people for you to put in these positions. Um, and so, I think it just becomes a really, let's say, great way, um, let's say, to engage them, but to engage them in a way that provides value for your organization, uh, and a great way for you to kind of let's say, have a foot in the door for the future of, of, you know, as things move forward, which at least in my opinion should be part of the point. And, and one of the things that I say in the multi-side is, is that I kind of use my background in, in tech and sciences um, to use innovation as a way to preserve wealth, right? And I think innovation can be a, a long-term way to, to preserve wealth. Nice. Well, I think you're already giving this the sort of second topic I want to touch on, which is obviously, you know, we are a VC fund of fund, yeah, focused on early stage ventures. So obviously, our passion is in that space. And um, what you've described around the family offices, where very often the next gens that are moving in, they want to actively invest into tech. Um, but there are different segways, different routes to that, right? There's, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can take tech investing. But not all of them, you know, have the same capabilities. Some are very risky. What is sort of your experience there um, in VC investing, which can be inherently risky? And what would you also tell other family officers who are just starting out in, in investing in tech and venture? Sure. I mean, so, so one of the things that I would always say, and I think it kind of strongly depends on where you're coming from. And, and mm -hmm. what your background is. Uh, one thing that we've seen both on our side and with all the clients, it's, it's generally speaking, people are investing in what they know. Um, and I think one way of doing this sort of becomes like, okay, what is your background? What is your family's areas of expertise? 
um, where do you have business relationships, networks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you can, you know, pinpoint these things, then realistically, I would argue all those things give you kind of a, you can essentially leverage all those things to give yourself an advantage and then kind of invest in those areas. So, so simple things. So we work with like about six, about six to eight agricultural families. So ag tech is a very obvious area mm -hmm. of investment for them. They understand the industry. They have the contacts um, very much so, especially if you're an uh, active operating family, you can actually leverage these businesses and, and sort of de-risk them by, by, you know, giving them opportunities either as pilots or customers or become dis distributors. So, so that, that's one thing, right? So, so I think the first thing uh, to your point is like, okay, understand who are you and, mm -hmm. and what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Um, and I, I would start there. It, it's, are, are there special areas and industries that, that you have expertise? So on and so forth. So doing that. So I think that that's that's one. Um, I think the second thing, right, is is what what is your goal with this family office? Um, I think a lot of people forget this step, and, and I think that that kind of ends up, let's uh, say, like causing problems down the road. You're sort of you're not setting solid solid foundations. Um, and I think one of the big things that people mistake is, is I think in general, often we talk about value. Most people are only tend to talk about financial value, um, and that, especially when we talk about finance, we, we're usually thinking about financial value. But very much so, another thing that that comes into play a lot, and I think particularly with family offices, is, is what I'm generally calling emotional value. Um, mm -hmm. a, a, emotional value can be a, a very, very big thing, um, and it's something that I, I don't think is, let's say, emphasized enough. Let's say if 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 you are not as a family office, if you're not active about, let's say. Uh, defining what's important to you on an emotional value side, then the default is we're essentially going to ignore that and only focus on the financial value of things. Um, and, and so I think that that's a different place to, place to start is, is, you know, what are the, the areas that you really care about? Um, and another way of looking at this as well is, is essentially uh, the way that I see it is when you make an investment, you're essentially voting on the future that you want to create on scale. Mm -hmm. Right? It's, a, it's kind of the same way we say you vote with your dollars, but now you're voting with your dollars on scale. And you're really actually saying, especially if we're talking about tech and venture, right? whether or not you've, you invest in a company really says whether or not that company exists in the future. That, that, that to a certain extent, is, is the, the statement you're making. Um, so the question becomes like, okay, what is the future you want? And, and what are the things that you really care about and, and want to see in the future? And start making investments in those areas. Um, and, and I think that's one thought. I think from there, kind of what you start to do is you start to go like, okay, from there, like, do we actually have the expertise in these areas to, to make intelligent solutions? Yes or no? Um, mm -hmm. if, if we, I mean, if we do, it's a much easier thing than realistically, probably what you're going to do is make direct investments uh, in the space. Um, I'm probably not going to touch as much on that because I think that's actually the easier pathway is sort of, if you're an expert, you want to do it. I, think, I guess this, the last piece is, do, you know, do, do you want to be active? Um, you know, do you want to make this a significant part of your, your life and your lifestyle? Assuming the answer to those questions, yes, it's pretty straightforward. You get active and most likely, and, and I would say we, we fall under this category, most likely, and I see a lot of families like this, you're probably going to be making a lot of direct investments. And then occasionally you're going to make fund investments in very specific areas to complement what you're doing on the direct side. Um, mm -hmm. basically if you see that there's a value, if you see someone can do it better, faster, cheaper, if you see that you want to gain knowledge, you'll work with someone else. But if you believe you can do it yourself, you'll probably do it yourself. So I think that's 
that's the easier situation. Um, I think for a lot of people, right, you, you might be missing one of these things and you go, okay, I want to do this, but I don't necessarily have the expertise. Um, and, yeah. and I think there's sort of, let's say, two-ish scenarios here. Let, let's start with the, the most broad scenario. You go, I want to make investments in venture, and I, but I don't know at all what I want to do. Um, if that's the case, what I would probably recommend is working with fund of funds. Um, and realistically, the, the whole point of it is, is to essentially learn what it is that you want to do, learn about the industries that you want. That, that excite you, learn the ones that you're passionate about, you learn about the ones that um, you want to see in the future. And then basically you get to see industries on scale and you start to go like, oh, I like this one, I don't like that one. Um, and it gets you to, to narrow down and give you kind of a really broad overall sense of the market with the intentionality that you're, you're doing this to learn so that you know, you're opening up so that eventually you can narrow down and be like, oh, in the long run, I actually want these two to three things or, or whatever it breaks down into. Um, if you actually really know kind of where you're focused, but you still don't feel like you have the skills, probably you would do the same thing, but with, you know, a, a more specialized fund. Um, and, and you can really learn from, you know, whatever it is, maybe it's biotech, maybe it's ag, maybe it's uh, AI, SaaS, whatever it is, right? It, it doesn't really matter, but you're kind of doing the same thing, right? Is, is you're, you're investing to learn, uh, working with some of the best, build, building some of the relationships, which is, I think is another thing that that can't be overlooked, right? Is, is if, if you look at a, a tech company, uh, they have this long lifestyle. One investor, generally speaking, is not going to be able to support them from from beginning to end. You're going to have to work with yeah. other investors uh, along the way. Um, you know, a great way to to build up the network and whatnot is to to invest in funds and you start to build up these relationships. Um, and and you know that can bear fruit at some point in the future when when you actually are looking for either you know a pipeline or co-investors or you know follow-on investors or whatever it is that, that you're going to kind of need with it within the strength of the journey mm, yeah makes makes a lot of sense i think you know there's not one size fits all right and it's it's also a lot of these trend, the strategies are complementary to each other right when families come out of a business environment where they were in you know they may have been in software we have seen multiple families that were in the software back in the 70s and 80s right so the, the parents started very big old school software companies. So they definitely know tech, but now next gens are moving in. Now the whole game has changed to traditional on-premise software. Uh, and so there's another layer of network and expertise that is, is required where often VC funds and fund of funds uh, can be very helpful, but also other family offices that are uh, you know more experienced in that ecosystem. So we do see that there's also more and more uh, networking and co-investment and syndication between family offices, which is actually very interesting when you look at it from a later stage and growth stage perspective, where family offices uh, can actually be a very attractive alternative to traditional VC funds. Um, now, maybe let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your investment process because we also got that question. Um, what is sort of your normal due diligence process for for startups and funds, right? Because I mean, you invest in both. So, what is really important for you when you're considering an investment decision? Sure. So, I think for us and the way that we look at it, first, we're kind of at any given moment. I, I have a set of mandates that I'm trying to execute on. Um, so that's kind of one of the first things: is is does this investment kind of hit tick one of the boxes for one of my mandates? Um, giving an example right now on the family office side, my my core mandate right now is renewable fuels. Um, so. Mm -hmm. The easiest thing right off the bat is, is this a renewable fuels investment? Yes or no? Um, <laughs> it's, it's really, it's really straightforward because I, I think a lot of people approach family offices and kind of 
think because we have money, we invest in everything. And I would say, realistically speaking, that's very rarely true. Um, you might see some that are kind of really broad stroke investors. And I think particularly you might see that a bit more on the on the more financially oriented family offices where they're kind of, let's say, less specific about uh, areas of expertise and kind of more just financial, pure financial returns driven. Um, but for us, that's kind of the starting point is, is this meeting one of our core mandates right now? If it is, we'll continue. If not, it's, it's a pretty much an immediate no. Um, we're not really looking for opportunistic. Um, our, also, our mandates are changing enough over time that, that we see what's relevant. Um, and so that, that's kind of really our starting point. Um, from there, it, it, it somewhat depends on, on whether or not we're talking about startups uh, or funds. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of where I want to start first. Uh, generally speaking, for us, we're, we're looking at slightly more later stage. Let's let's start with companies first. Uh, we're generally looking for slightly more later stage uh, with companies. So we're looking at kind of Series A and later. Uh, part of the reason is we're trying to put these companies directly into some of our uh, orga- parent organizations. Um, so yeah. we're, we're really looking for something that's not going to screw up anything with the parent organization. So, so think kind of like a corporate um that's not necessarily always at Series A, but we kind of use Series A as a relatively good marker. That's it's you know to get to Series A on the whole, usually you have a product that's working and, and won't screw things up for for other organizations, um, and so that that's kind of one of the things. But for me, one of the big things that I would say that I'm always looking for is I consider team to be really really important. Um, but what I'm always sort of looking for is is like what is the team's logic? How, how are they thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, I look at the decks and I, I use the decks to kind of understand like, okay, what is their thought process around this? Um, because I think at the end of the day, right, it's, it, I think every company is, is it's, it's a very, very difficult, um, really complex problem. And I, I actually think it's more complex than any, any human being can actually figure out to, to, to develop a company. And so the question sort of becomes is, okay, I need to trust that the founding team has the right way of looking at problems that I believe yeah. they'll be able to figure it out. And, and I think it's kind of amazing that often, I, I think like a scientist, so, so when I look at decks, I often go, okay, what is the hypothesis of this deck? That's kind of what I'm always looking at. And I think realistically for me, the hypothesis of every startup deck should be something to the effect of, uh, there is a problem, we know how to solve this problem, and if we solve it, someone will pay us. Like, like every hypothesis of everything should be something like that. Um, and it's, I find it's absolutely amazing that I would say 80 plus percent of all startup decks that I see can't clearly articulate like that simplistic thing. They, they either can't easily show who their customers are. They can't easily show the problem. You know, who is this a problem for? Are they actually willing to pay? Like one of those uh, variables is is unclear. Um, mm. and, and that's always gives me a bit of, of uh it's a bit of a red flag and gives me pause. Um, I think another thing as well is at least one of the things that I think about is, is I want to sort of get the idea that let's say the startup founder has thought about this way more than I have. Um, yeah. Cause, cause ideally, right. It should be, this is what they're spending all their time, energy and effort on, um, on the whole, right. Even though I see a lot of different things, I, I'm very much not an expert in everything. I don't have the time to, to really deep dive in every single market. Um, but I definitely see it as a red flag of if there's something obvious that I can see within like 10, 15, 20 minutes that, that is obvious that, that have been overlooked by the founders, that, that seems to be a red flag for me of just like, wait a second, like 
I don't really know your business or your industry, but like I can pretty quickly see that this is off. Um, yeah. You should be spending all your time on this. Like, what's going on here? And, and for me, again, it's it I take that as a um, a sign that something is off in the way that they're thinking about this and in the way that they don't deal. Solve. Go ahead. I, I, I think. I mean. Uh, I, don't you think this also applies to funds, right? I mean, you now described it a lot with startups, but I've seen, I mean, we get about 20 to 30 funds per week inbound to us, yeah? Um, some of them completely out of the scope of our investment strategy. And I mean, they, they could have Googled us uh, once and they would have known that this makes no sense. But, you know, being like thesis driven, having a hypothesis, you know, doing your homework, a lot of these things are kind of universally applicable to anybody who is fundraising. I 100% agree with you. Um, I think just, let's say the, the way that that plays out for funds is a little bit different. Um, and, and, but I, I'm with you. There's a lot of things that, that kind of map out. I don't think it's an exact one-to-one, mm. -one, but I, I think you see a lot of these things and, and 100% I'm with you, for example, and it would be the same things with, with, with the companies, right? In general, I would argue you, let's back up for a second. One of the things that I do on, on, on kind of the more community side is I talk to people about how fundraising is like sales. And one of the things that you would generally do in any type of sales situation is you would pre-qualify your leads. Yeah. Um, and I would say, generally speaking, uh, startups tend to be better about pre-qualifying their investors or potential investors. Let's call it investor leads and kind of seeing that like, oh, is this investor a good match? Yes or no. I would argue on a different case, uh, fund managers and GPs, emerging managers who are raising funds tend to be way, way worse at pre-qualifying their investment leads. Um, they, do, they just don't tend to be doing it. Um, they, I don't know. I, I get so many messages, uh, kind of like you probably getting good 20, 30 messages a week. Uh, so many messages of, hi, I have this fund. Do you want to talk? Like literally, that's the entire message. Hi, I have... XYZ fund, do you want to speak? N nothing about like whether it's a good fit for me. No, it just, do you want to speak? It's just like, generally speaking, honestly, I probably ghost most of those messages. Uh, occasionally I'll, I'll give them a no, but it's just sort of like, yeah, you haven't looked at it. I, I, I'm actually fairly open. It's, it's on my, my LinkedIn of, of what I'm exactly looking for. Um, very, very often it says, oh, we're a fund that's not in what I'm looking for. And just like, like you said, you, you could have literally looked at my profile and see what I'm looking for. Um, and not, you're not doing any of this pre-qualification. Um, and, and I think you're right. It, it's connected to what I said before. It's, it's you know, are, are you doing your homework? Um, this, is, this is a, I hate to put it this way, right? right? But it is somewhat of a job. You, you have to put the work in. Are, are you putting the work in to, to kind of see like, oh, is this a good person to try to sell to or not? Are they qualified or yeah. not? Um, worse is, I, I, was, I was saying this is, is kind of a funny-ish story. Um, so I got my wife involved with the family office uh, shortly before we we got engaged and, and married, um, and kind of the first time she was going out for meetings. And she has a part of her background was originally in like startup sales. And first time she goes, we're going to an event together. The first time she's kind of actively involved in the family office, uh, she was a bit nervous, and she's asking me like, "Hey, do I need to prepare for this?" And blah blah blah. And I was like, "Honestly, you'll probably be fine. Like, don't worry about it. Whatever." Um, Two, three days later, she goes through and she goes, this is amazing. Like blew her mind because some people walked into meetings and just started pitching, didn't ask her any questions, didn't do any qualification, just nothing. She went into meetings and didn't say you know, a word besides hello and goodbye. And it just like, and she's just like, how are these people expecting? And I'm like, 
yeah, that's that's kind of a, a decent amount of people that that's their their pitches are like that. And just from my point of view, like how are you expecting to get sales that way? Um, it's it's a really really just I don't know my opinion terrible way to do it. I, I don't know. Are, are you just looking for the practice um, and training? And if that's the case, great. Just let me know. Like hey, I want you know I know you're not a good. And and honestly, I I'm not sure everyone does this, but this is something I, that I tend to do if I have the time. Um, and it's probably connected to the fact that before and outside of of kind of being in the investment in tech and family office space, uh, I've basically been an educator since like 2005, so almost 20 years now. Um, and so when I have the time, like I will actually be willing to sit down with people and be like, hey, I know you're not a good fit, but you seem like a decent person. Like I'll sit down with you and, and run you through this and, and give you feedback and and just, but just so you know that we're clear, like I'm not going to invest in this, but happy to kind of give you my two cents and, and whatnot. And on the whole, I think most of the people I've done this with are, are generally appreciative and getting a yeah. insight into their fund that that they probably are not really getting um, from a lot of other people. And in general, I don't think a lot of people, you know, most people are busy, not willing to take the time and energy. Um, and I'm not going to lie. I think there's part of that that's purely selfish of, I want to see better funds and more relevant funds. Um, and, and hopefully by upskilling the people around me um, in the long run, that will happen. Um, but but in the short term, you know, if 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 the person on the other end seems seems like a decent person, seems to be willing to listen and 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 you know take feedback and be somewhat coachable, I'm, I'm not all the time because I, I a lot of, I get a lot of inbound, but occasionally yeah. I, I I will do some some amount of of feedback. Um, yeah, the the other thing that you touched on that I, I haven't even gotten to dive into now is this is something that I think that's a little bit different than than on the startup side where you're talking about convictions and, and theses. Certainly I, I want to see a thesis, but um, very much so on the fund side, when we're looking at funds, we're always looking at essentially top one, top 1% funds. Mm-hmm. Um, and very much so, you know, all the data from, I think it's the last 30 years of venture shows, basically if you're not a top 1% fund, it's, it's not worth it for me as a family office. You're, you're, you're not beating kind of money market funds, which are essentially free, um, so it becomes a question of what, what am I paying for? Um, and so from that point of view, my question becomes like, hey, does this fund seem to have the potential to be top 1% in what they do? Yeah. If, if they don't have the, if, if I don't see that, then I'm not really interested from, from the get go. Um, and, and I think that's one of those things of, I, I was talking actually to a, to a solo GP, I think it was yesterday or the day before about this of, I actually sort of prefer niche, high conviction funds over more generalist, more kind of standard funds, just just because, yeah. and, and maybe not always, maybe their conviction, I agree or don't agree, but at least I, I would argue, at least you're standing for something. I, I, I yeah. kind of honestly overseeing tons of funds that are more generalist and don't don't actually really stand for anything, um, are, aren't really putting putting their neck outs and being like, hey, we believe this is, this is going to be well, way better off than than something else. Um, and I think one of the things about it, if, if you really think about a venture fund as a product, right. And, and I really do believe if you kind of think about all the different players in the market, essentially there, I would argue, if you come up with a kind of a strong conviction fund, there's probably a market out there for you. It probably exists. There's yeah. probably whatever your niche is, whatever your, your specialization is, there's probably someone who wants to buy that. It may or may not be yeah. me, but, but it certainly will be someone. And, and certainly if you do your pre-qualifying work, it's probably not going to be all that difficult to figure out who the, who the people are. Um, and I think it actually just makes it much, much easier on yourself if you get specialized and you go, hey, this is my focus. This is my niche. Okay. 
who would be the the people who really care about this topic um and then you know how do we get in front of them how do we get in front of them on scale um i think that becomes easier if if you're not doing that then like like it's it's almost not really worth a conversation um in, mm. in, in my opinion if, if if i don't really see a pathway to being top one percent then eh um like like yeah uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things, right? It's and and just so so people are, are well aware, um, I think some people know, but some people might not. Like, really, you need to be at least attempting to say that you're going to hit three x or above. Otherwise, it's it's very much not worth it um, from from yeah. kind of a, a financial modeling point of view. Um, and again, 90 yeah. percent of funds don't hit those numbers. Um, that's just the mathematics of it. Um, so if, if you're pretty much if a fund is not even claiming to attempt to do that, I, I don't even bother um yeah to, to be honest no it's, it's it's what we are also looking at right i think we are separating there very much between established managers and emerging managers where there is a certain difference especially when it comes to fund size right i think with established managers we've seen over the last um you know almost 10 years where money was very cheap and you could raise significantly larger funds all the time that some of these managers just got very very big with early stage funds and that's where we think is even though traditionally you may have been able to turn a 200 million fund into a 3x or something like this, which is already very rare. Now doing the same thing with an 800 million fund is starting to become impossible. Yeah, at least in our point of view. Yeah, and so that's where we can, are can rather. I, can yes, can so I jump sorry, on that for a second? Ahead. Yes, sure. I think one of the things is is not just impossible. It's one of the things if you actually start to look at the like economics of these funds, yeah. you're basically saying that for this fund to work out because because if, if you run the math what it ends up meaning is like to guarantee those returns you need something like uh i think it's on in that situation i think 20 30 billion plus exit on it's like something absurd if you start to go like okay what is the size of the stake that you'd have in a company yeah. to get those returns all of a sudden you realize oh we need our top one to, to be something like 30 40 50 million 50 billion plus exit and then you start to look at like okay in the history how many companies of that exist and it's like 10 like it's like 10 to 15 companies like you can really go through like how many companies have have been this much or, or above it's really really small and you're basically saying like okay for you to actually return your fund you basically have to hit on like one of the generational companies that exist in in kind of a five to ten year cycle um and it just it's not really realistic um, and that is yeah. one of the things for for a number of other reasons as well. Um, we we tend to be kind of more, or at least I personally tend to be more more inclined towards smaller funds. Um, part of for the reason that that we said before, it's much easier to sort of turn I don't know twenty into sixty than it is two hundred to six hundred, you know, uh, five hundred to to one and a half, um, yeah. etc. But I think the other thing as well, and and this is maybe not necessarily where you wanted to go with this, is one of the things that I tend to see is I personally believe if you look at the the fund economics and the incentives, you tend to see around the 75 to $100 million mark where the incentives of the funds and the firm go from carry-oriented towards fee-oriented. Yes. And, and I think that really, really changes essentially the service that you get from the fund. Um, and, yeah. and it becomes more about how, how much assets can we acquire, which at least in my point of view, your ability to acquire assets has nothing to do with the value that I'm going to get it as an LP. It just, just, it just, okay, you can sell your fund really well. Great. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't tell you anything about the 
the actual return of the fund. Um, it, it doesn't kind of add to my bottom line at all. Um, and then the, what you see at kind of higher and higher levels is that you, you essentially can make so much money off your fees that the carry becomes kind of second, at least this is what, what I would argue, becomes kind of a second thought. You, you've made your money to begin with already. Um, you know, at a hundred million, you're already doing 2 million a year, right? Under standard yeah. terms, right? That, that's yeah. pretty significant. You know, no, one, no one's about to cry home over, over that, right? Um, scale that up as, as much or as little as you want. Uh, sorry for that little. No, thing, I, but yeah. I, we hundred percent share this, right? I think in, in venture, especially in early stage, small is beautiful, right? The smaller funds, you know, they, they outperform significantly. We've done some funds that are as small as 10 million. Yeah. And they're, they are now already getting into year three. We can see the portfolio uh, performing extremely well. Um, and so this is what we like. Yeah. So going back to the market, um, in like normal intervals with kind of conservative increases in AUM based on the performance. Yeah, I think that's for us at least far more important than a long-term relationship than having these old school brand funds that are suddenly becoming these very big 500 million plus funds in Europe, which for Europe is large um, in early stage. Yeah, I think this is going to be very, very hard. And some of these funds, we already see that they are reducing their fund sizes. They're changing their strategy a little bit. So there is certain movement in the market right now, but obviously this makes it much harder to family offices, again, sometimes allocating to venture because the industry in itself is so, um, you know, it's like a, it, it, traditionally it's been called like a cottage industry, right? It's a little bit unfinished, uh, I would say, compared to private equity or hedge funds, where it's just a much more mature asset class. Uh, and venture is still sort of finding itself, I think, where, you know, you need to see what is really the right, a strategy for a global success of venture, right? Not everybody can build a Sequoia or Andreessen Horowitz when it comes to size. And also they have to prove that they will continue the success that they've had over the last 30 years, uh, over the next 30 years. I, I think there's two things that I want to touch on uh, for what you said. One of them that I notice as well, and I, I often feel like the, the funds don't realize this, right? Is not all strategies work at all levels of fund size. And generally yeah, speaking, as the fund scales, at some point, they're actually going to have to come up with an entirely new strategy. Um, it just, it just sort of whatever they were doing, especially if you're talking, because let's say what you often will see, right, is that, let's say, funds might start towards the earlier stages. And as they grow, they'll kind of work their way later and later and later. Yeah. Um, and the same strategies that are working at the earlier stages don't really work at the later stage. And you get into kind of one of two situations, right? Either situation A is that they basically try to force an earlier stage strategy to work at a later stage. And generally speaking, I would say that doesn't work. Or the other thing is they, they kind of move away from the strategy that made them successful because they can kind of no longer do that at, at the le same level yeah. of capital. They, they're kind of a bit self-aware in, in that regard, right? Um, but then they kind of have no background or, or expertise or whatnot on, on this later stage strategy. And so that doesn't necessarily always work as well. Right. And, and I, I think that's one of the challenges is a little bit, let's say, for the, the venture ecosystem as a whole is, let's say, because of this desire to grow the fund, very, very few firms and fund managers sort of go, oh, this is what our expertise is. We're going to lock down this strategy and just continue to hit it because we know it works. Um, mm -hmm. We're, we're going to be happy with, I don't know, raising a $50 million fund every you know four to five years. Very few people like that, they go, oh, we're going to expand, whatever. And, and you start to get essentially thesis drift, conviction drift, 
Um, and yeah. it doesn't really end up working in the long term. Um, I think the other thing that, that I wanted to touch upon um, that you mentioned about the, these cottage industries that I think is a, a bit a little bit different from from let's say hedge funds and, and PE is I would argue that the venture capital space is is way more opaque than yeah. a lot of these industries. It's it's way less transparent. And I think because of that, you're essentially what I would argue is GPs are not because they believe that they're competing against each other. Um, they're not sharing what they're doing. And so basically, as a whole, the industry is not learning from each other. And so it's not actually pushing the industry forward and being like, oh, let's say if, if, if I'm a fund manager and you're a fund manager, let's let's trade ideas and, and, and do that. It, it's generally being yeah. a little bit more secretive uh, with the idea, which is honestly a bit of a kind of a famine mentality, um, which is a little bit, in my opinion, a little bit silly um, or, or short-sighted um, with this idea of like, oh, you know, we, we've hit something so so secret that if we tell anybody, it's going to lose our edge and blah, 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 um, which I think is really funny if you think about like, let's say every other product or service that exists in the world. Um, n- like no one is is being like, oh, McDonald's has to save its, how it makes hamburgers because no one else wants to buy hamburger. Like, it, it, if you play this out in any other industry, it starts to sound very, very silly. Um, and this yeah. idea that like, oh, there, there's only room for capital of let's say one type of I don't know let's say climate tech fund for example so I I need to be very secretive about my t- climate tech fund because like I'm the only one in the entire market that's going to get money like that's just very very untrue um, and I and I think if there's a bit more sort of openness and transparency um, you you would be able to have the industry as a whole start to develop because you'd actually get get learnings um, from the ecosystem accelerating a lot more. I think the other thing that, that would happen, right, is, is, is one of the things that I kind of find really funny is because of this lack of transparency, I think a lot of GPs, and I, I imagine you, you probably realize this as well, they don't really, let's say, in comparison to startups, I think a lot of startups at least have some sense of, of what other startups are in the market that are doing somewhat yeah. of a similar thing and raising money. I think most VC funds, especially emerging managers, are not really aware of the other funds that are trying to pitch the same story. Um, and when actuality, I would argue 70, 80% of funds that I see are pitching very, very similar stories. Um, and because they're not talking to her, they're, they're not actually aware that like, oh, even though th- this idea that they think is so unique and, and, and that they're pushing is actually something that I've, I've seen 10 of this week. Um, and usually it kind of goes and, and flows. And, and one of the things in, in a framework that I've started using, and I, I don't know if this, this resonates for you, is when I look at funds specifically for funds and how I analyze them, I look at first, you know, what is the macro opportunity here? Yeah. What is the kind of the macro story? Is there a macro story? And certainly if I don't believe there's a macro story, then, then whatever, right? Is, is there a macro opportunity? Um, and I think most funds stop at that. And, and that's why I end up seeing, you know, for any specific macro opportunity, I'm seeing 10, 15, 20 funds, easy. Yeah. Then the question becomes like, okay, then what is the specific opportunity? And when I say specific is like, what opportunity do you, your fund managers, you know, the, the GPs of your fund, what opportunity that do you have within this macro story that is unique compared to everyone else? And I would say, generally speaking, I don't know, funds that are offering something like that is, I don't know, 5%, less than 5%. Mm. Um, on the whole, most of them are, are not really offering anything unique. Um, but I think most of them are not actually aware that they're not offering anything unique because in general, there's kind of a, there's, there's not the transparency 
and communication between the, the, the fund managers because on a certain level, they're competing with each other. So they're, they're not aware that 10, 20, 25 people are, are raising on, on similar thought, thought processes yeah. and not diving deeper. No, I, I think what you mentioned there is, is super true, right? Having an overview of the market is something that is really hard in venture where there's not, a, there's not a single database that exists where you can go in and say, tell, show me all climate tech funds that are below 100 million in Europe that are currently fundraising. Yeah, so that is not possible. You need to sit an analyst or yourself, do research, and then uh, by the time you're finished, you probably your data set is outdated. Um, so yeah, I, I think we, we definitely have to do some work there in the industry. Uh, what we are trying really to do with AQVC is also obviously try to bring some of that transparency, right? You're part of that. And thank you a lot, Alex, for also sharing your knowledge, right? I, th I think this is super fantastic. And we're coming to the end of, the, of our session. Uh, and we had one more question here on how do you see the future of your family office also look like, right? What is it really what you orient yourself? Is it something where you look at other family offices to try to learn from them or... Do you have a certain vision for you and your family to really make this an intergenerational uh, wealth uh, uh, creation, what, you, what you're working on now? Or is it intergenerational, right? We talked about this uh, in the preparation. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, a book there that you've recently read. Uh, is, it, is it really dying with zero, right? Or what is, what is the goal? No, I, I think there's a couple of different things. Yeah, yeah. We, we were talking about dying with zero, uh... I'll just mention that for people who aren't aware. Um, there's, I'm pretty sure he's an energy trader named Bill Perkins. He's, he's an American based, based in Texas. Uh, he wrote this book, Die With Zero, um, essentially with the idea that most people tend to optimize their financial returns and financial gains. Um, but that doesn't necessarily make you, let's say, a rich or wealthy individual. Um, you need to sort of balance your financial returns with, with what he called... Uh, essentially his memory returns, if you want to call it that. He, he, he had this concept of a memory dividend. Um, and so his idea was to sort of, how do you sort of balance out essentially having the funding that you need to achieve the things you want with actually generating memories and, and doing things today? Um, and one of his big things was, was really around, you know, if you want to support your children, don't wait till you die, G give them the money today. Um, or if you want to support various causes don't wait for you yourself to die like do it today um start start it start it today and 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 really kind of you know push all these things forward so that you actually get kind of you know uh, interest on these opportunities because the interest will it's one of those things right that time in the market is better than timing the market if you get that money in already a lot more that can happen with it then if you wait 20, 30, 40 years for you to die and then put the money in 40 years into the future, um, even if you're putting in way less today, the compounding consequences of those actions will, will probably almost definitely be at a much higher point in the future. Um, and so that, that's definitely something that on a personal level, I, I, I am somewhat thinking about of, of you know, how am I balancing of, of say, achieving the things I want, supporting the causes I want, um, creating the future that I want um, with kind of ensuring that, let's say there are enough financial resources to to achieve those things, right? Which is, is kind of the the financial side of this. Uh, a different question of of what this looks like moving forward. It, it's a really good question because at least for, for us right now, uh, family office is still kind of under the patriarch, so under under my dad. Um, 
the, the next level is, is me and my sister. Um, there hasn't been necessarily almost any conversations of what's going to happen post. Um, I think one of the things, at least now, we'll have to see long-term, but I think one of the things now that I think will make this easier is me and my sister have actually a very, very strong relationship with each other. We're extremely, extremely close. Um, I would imagine that hopefully that let's say when it becomes the time of, of talking about succession and how we're involved and, and all these types of things, it'll make those conversations easier. I think, I, I, I hope, yeah. um, I don't know, maybe it's the, it's the thing that drives the wedge between us. I, I don't think that's going to be the case, but who knows, right? That stranger things have happened. Um, but, but I think it's one of those things that, that we're probably going to be responsible for, for figuring out, okay, what happens next? What is, what is kind of the, almost the legacy of it. I, I do have a feeling, and this, this is just pure speculation. I, I think some of these legacy questions on a family level are probably going to be put towards me and my sister. I, I have a feeling mm. that, that that is something that that is not going to be done, at least in a, in a, a system, uh, systematized manner uh, for my dad. It just doesn't seem mm. to mess his style, so to speak. Um, and so I, I think that that some of those questions are going to come to us a little bit more um, to figure out like, okay, what, what do we want as the long-term uh, legacy of this family, of the family office? Yeah. Um, how does that play out? And I think it's still relatively early. I, I'm kind of aging myself. Uh, I'm in my later thirties. Uh, my sister's in her earlier thirties. Um, so th there might be a little bit of time to, to, to sort that out. My, like I said, my dad, my dad's not retired yet. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. That's the, the best way that I can answer that question at the moment. But. <laughs> no, Alex, this, is, this has been great. And I mean, I'm, I'm wearing two hats, right? One hand, I'm, I'm one of the founding partners of AQVC. On the other hand, I'm, the, I'm, I'm also from a, from a family and business background. I have five smaller siblings. Uh, and, and we can deep dive onto a session all about that succession, uh, brothers and sisters uh, trying to take over from the patriarch. <laughs> There's a lot of... Um, a lot of things to discuss there, but this session was fantastic, Alex. All right. So I really wanted to thank you. Um, oh, thank you. For unfortunately, we are already at the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, and thanks a lot to all the great questions. Unfortunately, we couldn't, couldn't answer all, all the questions. Um, if you have any feedback uh, to me, um, please feel free to reach out. I put my email in the chat and uh, thanks again to Alex um, for joining us. If all of you, uh, uh, want to receive a recording. We are also sending out a recording of this afterwards. And uh, hopefully you can join us again in one of our next webinars. And maybe Alex and I will do a do, will do a part two, hopefully soon. No, if you want to do a part two, I'm glad to be there. And just want to you know thank everyone for joining. Uh, and if you have questions for me directly, um, add me on LinkedIn. Uh, should I drop that? I might as well drop that. Give me half a second. Yeah, um, yeah sure. Drop your, drop your LinkedIn uh, link in here. But be careful yeah. what you wish for. Um. Yeah, 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 I know. <laughs> I, 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 I know. I know how it is. Uh, but yeah, I'll drop my LinkedIn in, in chat. So yeah, like like uh, Simon said, if if you have questions that weren't answered and and they for me specifically, please reach out. Uh, like I said, I'll try to answer them um, as much as I can. Um, and yeah, th thank you, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for having me. And this is great. And like you said, uh, I'm open for round two if you want to do another round. So so just great. let me know. Thanks, Alex. Speak soon. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you.